from Pacifica Radio, this is The Broadcast, as heard on KPFK, 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, in Oregon, on KYAQ on the Central Coast, and Queso in Cottage Grove, Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. Are you taking notes here? Seattle, Washington's KODX, KFOI in Red Bluff and Redding, California, KKRN in Red Mountain, California, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, hi Nicole, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, and Detour Talk, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. Usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. That's why they call it the Bradcast, but I'm Angie Cuero of Indeep with Angie Cuero sitting in. News is on the relentless side today, so please sit back and strap in. More revelations about Michael Cohen's sources of money, companies you know and may give cash to yourself. One of those may, may be a game changer in the Russia-Trump love affair. We'll hear later from Jed Sugarman on that one. Right now, though, to the Gina Haspel CIA confirmation hearing, and that has brought out some truly grim stories of things that happened on her watch, torture and destruction of records that documented that torture. Think about a pregnant woman getting kicked in her stomach and flying for hours with her eyes taped open. God bless America, huh? First, we go to ProPublica, which profiles Abd al-Rahim al-Nashiri. He is currently facing a military commission at Guantanamo for attacking the USS Cole and a French oil tanker. He has admitted to the coal attack. He is up for the death penalty. So you don't have to think he's a nice guy. Still, is this okay with you as an American citizen? From the ProPublica story, any bravado had disappeared well before Nashiri's CIA captors strapped him naked to a hospital gurney in a windowless white cell and began pouring water into his nose and mouth until he felt he was drowning. He pleaded with them to stop. They continued. They were going to get the truth out of him, the interrogator told Nashiri, according to a previously undisclosed CIA cable. They were going to do this again and again and again until he decided to be truthful. This apparently despite repeated evidence and historical proof that torture does not elicit the truth. It breaks the human spirit, if that's your point. It does that. But you're more likely to get somebody to say something, say anything to make the horror stop. Anything you might want them to say. Not the truth. So now we switch over to the New York Times. This is all the backdrop for the Haspel hearings today. An opinion piece by Fatima Budchar. She says her abduction and torture by Muammar, Muammar Gaddafi's troops pale next to what the CIA subjected her to. She hadn't bombed anything. Now, I'm assuming this all has been fact-checked by the New York Times. She had escaped with her husband from Gaddafi's rule. It was the CIA that brought her back to Libya. She has never figured out why. Now, here are her words as to what went down. 
I never meant the United States any harm, she said. I hardly thought about the United States until I was chained to a wall in the CIA black site. I have no idea how long I was in the Thai secret prison because no one would let me sleep. The cell was white and stark with nothing in it but a camera and hooks on the wall. The masked abductors were waiting. I was terrified. They chained me to the hooks. Because I was midway through my pregnancy, I could barely move or sit. Some of what they did to me in that prison was so awful, I can't talk about it. They hit me in the abdomen just where the baby was. To move me, they bound me to a stretcher from head to toe like a mummy. I was sure I would shortly be killed. For the rendition flight to Libya, I was taped to a stretcher again. The tape caught the corner of my eye. It stayed that way. My eye taped open, tears streaming down my face for more than 14 hours. These and other cringeworthy tales form the backdrop to Haspel's confirmation hearing today. Empty Wheels Marcy Wheeler has been watching that hearing, and she has posted her impressions on EmptyWheel.net. Headline, Gina Haspel's Fluid Moral Compass. She's back with us now on the broadcast. Marcy, thanks for joining me on this one. Great to be here. You know, I was just whining about how much news there is today and, and how hard it is to keep up with it all. And I'm really grateful that you were the eyes on the CIA hearing. So give me a rough idea of the tone of the hearing. Did we see any truly challenging questions? Well, interestingly, all of the questions were about torture. I understand that the other things we should know about are going to take place in a closed hearing. There were challenging questions, but ultimately uh, she dodged them all. She, there's a whole list of questions she did not answer. What would you like to have seen asked? Well, interestingly enough, Warner, who is the ranking member on the committee, said he basically said, you know, you're used to living in the shadows. You probably really didn't know what you were up for today, but we need some more transparency from you. I think he's a no vote unless he gets that. I think Manchin's a yes vote, uh, the Democratic senator from, from West Virginia. But um, I think Warner will oppose the nomination unless he gets more out of her. And frankly, he sort there was this question about the parallel between John Brennan, a fair question, I think, about the parallel between John Brennan and Gina Haspel. Brennan was in a more senior management position when torture was started, and yet he was confirmed to be CIA director. Mm -hmm. I think the difference is Brennan publicly disavowed it, whereas Haspel over and over again, when she was asked to say whether torture was moral, whether it worked, whether... Whenever she was asked those questions, she dodged. So unlike mm -hmm. Brennan, she ultimately did not disavow torture. She made it clear that she supported it, not just when she was doing it, but even um, when it was reauthorized in 2005. So she's a torture fan. That's pretty clear. You know, one of the things from your article that you put up in just the last few minutes, that's Gina Haspel's fluid moral compass that's at emptywheel.net. You point out that she refused to say whether she was in a role supervising torture, uh, specifically the torture of Al-Rahim al-Nashiri, who's been very much in, in the news coverage about this. Something like that strikes me as a matter of record. I mean, granted, the CIA is not transparent by its very nature, but isn't her specific role documented? 
Well, not officially. And the, what she was trying to do there, I'm certain, is avoid being called to testify in his trial. Mm. So, yes, she absolutely oversaw his torture. Yes, she absolutely oversaw the black site where he was tortured. Uh, he's asking for that kind of information. Remember, he's being tried in a military commission in, in Gitmo right now. And she, I think, is trying very hard to avoid saying anything that will lead her to be caused, called as a witness. That's one of the many reasons why she should not have been nominated to be CIA director. If you can't go and testify in a court hearing, then you should not be CIA director, regardless of how qualified or how appropriate you might be. What about her not admitting whether or not she's been alone with President Trump? Again, that one just kind of sticks out as me at me is it's odd to dodge the question and it's not, odd not to just say, yes, I've been in the same room with the president alone. Right. So we assume the answer is yes. Yeah. <laughs> and we assume that she's had conversations that she probably shouldn't have had. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that that and, and she also refused to say whether she would tell Congress if he asked her for a loyalty. Oath. So. For all of those reasons, I mean, I honestly, as I said in my post, I expected to dislike her, but find her competent. I don't even believe she came off as competent today because she because her story crumbled so obviously. And she I mean, like John Brennan at least lied competently. She didn't even competently lie. And I don't understand. She should be a better liar than John Brennan, because that's what we paid her to do for 30 years. Well put. What about the fact that she tried to rescind her nomination? Does that have any bearing, do you think, on the potential for her being confirmed? I don't think it uh, will have bearing on potential for being confirmed. But interestingly, in the wake of that, there was some discussion about a plan B. And um, and in the plan B, the intelligence community talked about appointing a woman named Sue Gordon, who is kind of the principal deputy over at ODNI. And and. And everything I've heard about her says she's wonderful, she would be appropriate, she would be well-loved, she would be a woman. So you can't say that Gina Haspel is the only woman who possibly could be the first uh, female CIA director. Um, She doesn't have the torture problem. And so, so does it affect her confirmation? No, but it did at least Flush, flush out a name of somebody who could be confirmed and who frankly should be confirmed. And so... You know, that I think uh, was was particularly interesting. Looking at some of the coverage today of specific stories, specific people who were tortured, how how badly, how appalling these cases were. It's, it's to me, it strikes me that it would have been better to have these stories out there sooner. She's already before Congress. Her appointment is already being discussed. Do you think those came out in a manner that still has the possibility for impact? Well, we'll see. You know, as I said, I think Warner was unsatisfied with her appearance today. And after the hearing, he and Burr were kind of sitting there chatting on the dais for several minutes. Mm -hmm. And and so I wonder whether Warner isn't going to say we need some more transparency and preferably another public statement from her, because absent that, he said at the end, Warner did, um, that he can't expect the American people to have trust in her based on her appearance today. And I think that that's correct. Mm -hmm. And I think that absent some ability to develop that trust, she should not be confirmed. And I think that's where he's leaning to. My last question is a procedural one. I saw people complaining that the reporters were thrown out and this eventually went into a closed door hearing. 
I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Wouldn't that be standard in this kind of confirmation hearing for this kind of position? What's that? Uh, to, to have a, uh, to at some point get rid of the reporters, get rid of the public, and put everything behind closed doors. And we are talking about a CIA position. Oh, it is absolutely standard. It always that that's always what happens, and and that is fine. The problem here is there was just one quick round of questions. So, um, for example, uh, several senators did a tremendous job getting certain things on the record in the public session. But because of the importance of getting the torture stuff on the record, we also didn't get things like, you know, how she feels about Russia. She's supposed to be fairly hawkish on Russia. She was involved in, you know, Cold War spying on Russia. But given her comments about Trump, I... uh, I want to hear more about that. I, I actually don't think I would have any concerns about what she would say on Russia, but I th- I would have liked to see some public questions about that, and we didn't get those. Marcy, I knew you'd be the person to go to. Thank you so much for your time. Good to talk to you, Andy. And uh, Marcy Wheeler's article you want to check out is on EmptyWheel.net, Gina Haspel's Fluid Moral Compass. Marcy Wheeler, we're taking a break here, then we'll dive into more news, including Michael Cohen's Bulging Pockets or at least his bulging corporation shell, and Tuesday's elections. I'm Angie Cuero. This is the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. We really need your support now more than ever. Progressive media outlets have been under attack for years, even during supposedly progressive administrations. We are now facing a whole new world, and real alternatives to the mainstream corporate media must be able to continue the fight for all of us. This is not a drill. It never was. Please consider a donation to our work here on the Bradcast by stopping by bradblog.com donate to help out however you can. A monthly pledge is greatly appreciated, but anything you can share will keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And... Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. It's the broadcast. I'm Angie Corro. That creaking sound you hear is Michael Cohen twisting in the wind. It sounds like AT&T and Novartis may be joining him out in the breeze there. Now, caveat, it's not a big shock that American government is pay to play. It almost feels like it's been that way forever. Maybe it has. But with every administration, we fall further down that scale. Trump? I don't know. Maybe Trump is everything we deserve. The poster boy, the nader, the culmination of all these years of price tags on the White House and congressional seats. Even given that context, decades of corruption, this one's pretty bold. CNBC broke the story of AT&T paying Trump lawyer Michael Cohen up to $600,000 for, this is according to CNBC's source, not access to Trump per se, but for, quote, actual work including insights into Trump's thought process. The inner workings of Trump, how he likes to operate, how he likes to make decisions, how he processes information, the source said, and how he thinks about the big issues. Whether might be more of an issue than how, 
in many of these cases. But anyway, AT&T is not alone. Novartis. Okay, this one I got to read you. Swiss drug giant Novartis signed a consulting contract with him, with Cohen, in February 2017, after he approached the company and promised, quote, access. See, this access this time. AT&T says they were not promised access. Novartis is staying, saying access flat out. He approached the company and promised access to the new Trump administration, according to NBC News, citing a Novartis official. They're going on the record here. Novartis revealed earlier Wednesday that it had paid Cohen $1.2 million for consulting work related to health care policy. Here's the payoff. You ready? The company said it continued paying the president's personal lawyer under that one-year contract despite finding out. Within just a month or so, Cohen was unable to do the work expected. Damn. Nice work if you can get it, huh? I can't build buildings either. Maybe I can get an architectural contract. It was Stormy Daniels' lawyer, Michael Avenatti, who released word that these payments went into a shell corporation, Essential Consultants. He also tied in one of Vlad Putin's buddies in a way that Jed Sugarman says may bring us that much closer to a smoking gun for the presidency. Jed's a professor of law at Fordham University. His article up at Slate right now is how Michael Cohen's apparent Russia payment may help prove collusion. He made some time for me on the phone. Jed, thank you for joining us. And boy, wouldn't it be nice to prove collusion and have done with it? You are turning optimistic about that? Uh, well, let, let me just say, none of none of this is good news. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> this whole thing is crazy. Um, and it's uh, so the only good news is that if it did happen, then we are much closer to finding a way to prove it. Um, I'll put it that way. OK, let's let's get some of the characters in line here. This this allegation came from Michael Avenatti, who, of course, has been representing Stormy Daniels. Uh, the corporate fund that he's talking about seemed to be controlled by Victor Vexelberg. Now, who's that? Victor Vexelberg is uh, among the group of Russian oligarchs uh, and billionaires who are um, in Vladimir Putin's orbit. Um, there is some question about how close he is to Vladimir Putin. But more directly, Vexelberg is a, a, a close associate of Oleg Deripaska. And simply put, De Oleg Deripaska is one of the baddest bad guys in this group um, with, you know, making threats and perhaps, you know, allegations that he killed off uh, competitors and other business associates, um, uh, that he uh, has connections to organized crime. Um, so uh, Victor Vexelberg owns a 26 percent stake in Deripaska's aluminum firm and th that uh, with the massive aluminum giant. Um, so they have they had they have untold amounts of money at stake with the sanctions that are in question uh, under the Trump administration. Got it. So now what we're looking at accusations is that Vexelberg gave $500,000 into Michael Cohen's bank account. And this was when Trump first became president. How does this fit in the timeline of all the other Russia-Trump connections that we're seeing? Great. This is exactly what I was trying to put together in my piece. And it is complicated. But the bottom line is you have to remember all of, first of all, you have to remember the Steele dossier. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And at this stage, even though when the Steel Dossier first came out, there were a lot of questions about how much was true and how much was fantasy. And little by little, um, a lot of the Steel Dossier is getting confirmed. The, the part that I'm focused on, a lot of people get distracted by the salacious stuff. The most important thing in the Steel Dossier that keeps getting more substantiation is this I, uh, the, the alleged agreement that Russia would sell off its massive state energy company called Rosneft. Mm -hmm. And they, they off they, the allegation is that they floated this offer to Trump associates in the middle of the, of the campaign. And the idea was that they would use commissions from the sale uh, and use those under the radar to pay off the Trump associates from those commissions in return from the Trump administration lifting sanctions or at least softening sanctions on the Putin oligarchs. Okay. Mm -hmm. So then here's the key. That allegation in the Steele dossier about that, that quid pro quo sale of that oil company, the energy company, that actually happens in the month after the election, but a month before the Steele dossier goes public. Mm-hmm. In, in December 2016, you'll remember that there was uh, this crazy story that, uh, that Jared Kushner and Michael Flynn got, uh, reached out to Russian officials to try and set up a secret line from the Russian embassy to the Kremlin. Mm -hmm. This is part of what got Flynn in trouble um, and why he had to resign. Well, uh, that was happening. That, that, that attempt to set up a secret back channel, the question is, well, why would anyone try and do that unless they were trying to evade detection? Well, immediately after they make that meeting, then Russia sells off that massive energy company. And that's, that all happens in December. Um, I've tried to, you know, there's much more detail here that I'm not going into. But the point is that it seems like in December, certain arrangements are made that start to bring together the events of the quid pro quo allegations in the Steele dossier. One month later, in January, the payments start from Victor Vexelberg to Michael Cohen in this account that he j had just created to pay off Stormy Daniels and, mm -hmm. and hush money. That money is much more than the amount that he paid to Stormy Daniels. So, so, could, so there are a couple questions here. Um, was Victor Vexelberg part of an arrangement to reimburse Michael Cohen for his payments? And if so, are there more hush money payments that Michael Cohen made for which he was getting reimbursed? Or was Michael Cohen uh, also engaging in you know, selling access or taking in the money to then under the radar – uh, find a way to pay off Trump and other associates. So we don't know the answers to those questions yet. Mm -hmm. um, that's why that's why I say in the slate piece, uh, it's premature to call this a smoking gun. But what Michael Avenatti has done with these documents is he's given us a preview of what that smoking gun might be. Um, mm -hmm. And he's given us a roadmap for how prosecutors would be able to go use these documents to find that smoking gun. Taking a look at how Donald Trump has responded to just about everything else uh, to do with Michael Cohen, and there's just a, a real letting it hang out there in the wind, uh, the history that they have together. 
Is this giving us a better chance to tie them together to a point that Trump really can't disclaim him? Well, let me start with the fact that um, we that these documents are already part of a very strong criminal case against both Michael Cohen and Trump. So you don't need to get all the way to, to a bribery case for them both to be in criminal jeopardy for what we already know uh, and what these documents then confirm. So the first step is um, between these documents and what Rudy Giuliani confessed um, over the weekend, uh, there is a strong case for a campaign finance felony of, of deliberately hiding uh, campaign expenditures and campaign debts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's also in these documents a pretty slam dunk case that Michael Cohen engaged in bank fraud in uh, misrepresenting what these accounts were for um, to the bank. And that, so those are both felonies. Now, once you have, once you start with those felonies, then a prosecutor would use them against Michael Cohen for him to make a deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that, and, and what I'm suggesting here um, is that we, that's the roadmap for the prosecutors, that they can use some of the smaller c- crimes that are very clear here to get Michael Cohen to be a witness to the crimes that are harder to prove. It is actually pretty hard to prove bribery um, under federal law. Um, but if you have a witness who can basically confirm that this was a quid pro quo arrangement, then that is tremendously important for prosecutors who are trying to prove that case. Uh, before we call it a day here, I want to give you a chance to amplify your snark, which I found amusing, at sugarblog.com. S-H-U-G-E-R blog.com. You included the, the little bit that was cut from the yes. end of your article as it ran in Slate. Would you care to amplify? Sure. Uh, you know, when I look at these, at this uh, set of documents, I'm just struck by how dumb these people are. <laughs> you know, once, it, it, keep in mind, the Steele dossier has then come out and everyone knows that there's going to be scrutiny here. And nevertheless, this, this Russian guy, Victor Vexelberg, decides that he's going to just pay Michael Cohen. And just because it's through a, you know, some other company that he's attached to, people won't tie it back to him. So my observation is that um, the Vexelberg and other Russians just might assume that they're dealing with Americans as if they're all living in Russia, when all, it, all that matters is you know, who's in power. And once you know the people in power, you can get away with open corruption and you don't have to hide it. But my observation is that they are neither dealing in Russia with Russians, nor are they dealing with particularly bright Americans. Um, so th- it, this, I think, shows you both how um, how corrupt and incompetent Michael Cohen is. Uh, and, and the one other thing I'd say is Michael Cohen also was found to have something like a 13 cell phones that, that Mueller's team and the Southern District of New York confiscated. Good Lord, um, good Lord. <laughs> someone who has 13 cell phones that one, that, first of all, you don't have 13 cell phones unless you're doing something really shady with all those phones. And you don't, if you're doing shady things with all those phones, they're called burners for a reason. You're supposed <laughs> to get rid of them. So this is a guy who has 13 cell phones and kept them. Um, so, so this is this this would be funny if it weren't so disturbing. Yeah, maybe we shouldn't laugh yet because it's not clear who's going to get away with what. And I'm sure that we're going to hear a, or get a tweet from Donald Trump any minute that he was just benefiting from the world's largest cell phone family plan. So, no problem there. I want to thank you, Jed. That's really marvelous to have you here on the air. Thank you very much.
Jed Sugarman at Fordham University. Up next on the broadcast, what the elections this week do and don't tell us about future campaigns and the worst and best approaches to political rifts. I'm Angie Coro. This is the broadcast. <laughs> Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. But if you look for truthfulness, you might just as well be blind. It always seems to be so hard to get. This is the broadcast. I'm Angie Cuero. We have seen the numbers from primary elections across the country this week, with more coming next week. No real blowouts, no major upsets. Both parties had a little something to celebrate. So let's dig down now into the trends that show up across the country, whatever signals we can find about the future, most critically, what lessons can be put to use. Beth Becker is not only a marvelous person, she's also a digital strategist who conducts boot camps across the country for effective political organizing. She's been with ePolitics, the Progressive Congress, and she's the head of Becker Digital Strategies. You'll find her boot camps online there. Longtime political watcher who is ideal for this conversation. Beth made some time for me on the phone. Beth, thank you for joining me. It's good, good. to talk to you. Uh, let's look first at Ohio, which everyone, you know, seemed to have their eyes on in terms of whether this election would prove the weakness of Donald Trump or whether it would say his base was still with him. Do you think it's fair to call Ohio kind of a microcosm of that? I mean, yes and no. Mm-hmm. I think actually when you're looking at yesterday, it's probably better to look at things like West Virginia and North Carolina, what happened there in terms mm-hmm. of the Trump thing. I think Ohio was kind of a weird situation where, frankly, the establishment won on both sides of the aisle, mm-hmm. right? Cordray beat Kucinich, which, mm-hmm. you know, that's a whole other thing. And then, of course, DeWine. I mean, that's, that's, it's just, yeah, I don't, I don't know that I would necessarily say in this particular case that Ohio is a real bedwetter on the Trump agenda, one thing that I did notice kind of just looking through all the different results around the country yesterday is that really it didn't hurt anybody to be loud and proud for Trump. It, it's interesting that the, the for the GOP candidates, the theme of I'm an outsider, mm-hmm. that, that kind of Trump theme of I'm not, I'm not a Washington insider, I'm going to drain the swamp. Yeah. We feel with more swamp monsters, but whatever. Um, <laughs> that seemed to work, right? The guy in Indiana... Now his name is escaping me, but he beat the two members of Congress. You look at North Carolina, freshman, or not freshman, sophomore Pittenger, not going to have a third term. Lost, he barely won in 2014, mm-hmm. and then he loses, or 2016, and last night he loses by less than 1,000 votes mm-hmm. to an outsider. I think that, the, you know, that Trump is not hurting people the way we wanted them to. Look at Blankenship. Yeah, super, go into that in some detail. Super proud to be, you know, the outside Trumper, I did my time, lock him up, all that stuff. And then Trump puts out the tweet saying, you know, remember Alabama, kind of like remember the Alamo. Right. And he loses to the actual outsider. 
Well, does that say people maybe are a little less inclined to be fooled? I mean, if you posit yourself as an outsider, it's not necessarily going to be bought. I mean, one would hope by now that that would be understood. I would also argue that the problem with the outsider theme and the messaging is that then the outsider gets to D.C. and gets into office and doesn't actually know how to govern. Mm-hmm. And, gee, governing is hard. Who knew? <laughs> uh, they don't understand the rules and how law becomes law and, and the actual important things in making governance work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that us on the left at, attempting to make that our banner call messaging isn't going to play because it's insider baseball. I, I just travel all over the world, literally doing training. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of the day, the people that I talk to just want jobs, healthcare, education for their kids, a vacation once a year. All the little details that all of us, you, me, our friends, kind of wallow in and take joy in arguing about, mm-hmm. the average person just doesn't, right? Yes. I, I remember last year I was talking to a friend of mine. I've known him for like 30 some odd years. You know, there's no doubt I knew going into the conversation with him that he was a huge, you know, Republican supporter. And two pieces of the conversation really stand out even to this day. One was, I said, look, I'm not trying to put an argument with you, but seriously, what do you think of the job Trump's doing at this point? This was in July of last year. Mm-hmm. He said, well, you know, he's doing what he said he was going to do. He's, gonna, he's draining the swamp. Mm. And I said, well, you know, he's like just refilling it with more swampy people, right? Doesn't know, right? Yeah. And then we were out driving. I don't know. We were going to dinner or something. And and we passed an, an emergency, uh, uh, one of those, you know, uh, tra- trauma care medical places that are like popping up all over the place, like 7-Elevens anymore. Yes. Urgent care. That's what we're looking for. And we passed an urgent care that was where our 7-Eleven used to be, that we used to go to the 7-Eleven to get beer. And he made a comment about the fact that, you know, he can't afford health insurance in the job that he has, and the job doesn't provide it for him. But Obamacare was bad. And Mm. Obamacare made it so that he couldn't even get into the urgent care because the line was so long. And it would take five hours to be seen at the urgent care. What do you say to that? What do you say? Yeah, I'll admit, I'm not the messaging expert. I don't know. I kind of <laughs> at, at that one. And the truth is, I've never had to go to an urgent care. So I, to be honest, I never knew it was going to take me five hours to be seen by a doctor in urgent care. That's not good. No, right? no, it's not. But that's what people care about. What we're seeing is that the candidates that are talking about the things that actually, look, we all laugh about the line. Is the economy stupid? Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, the candidates that are actually talking about what's actually affecting people's daily lives and not talking about D.C., mm-hmm. talking about your neighbors and your school district and your city and the roads that you drive on, mm-hmm. right? Talking about the Department of Transportation and infrastructure spending, that's like talking Martian to people. But when you talk about that bridge down the street that's crumbling, suddenly it's real because mm-hmm. it affects their everyday lives. And if we can start doing that better, we're going to keep winning. I mean, we had a pretty good night, right? The left... Don't get me wrong. The, the, the left had a great night. We had 80% of the women who were in primaries yesterday won. That's fantastic. Right? The women are coming. The women are coming. Well, uh, let's talk, though, about Dennis Kucinich because, you know, whereas his chances weren't considered all that fabulous anyway, I mean, at least he at, historically has had a common touch. He has the ability to look like just a guy up there. So in that particular case, it doesn't seem like people were relating to him on that level because he's gone. He's out of the race. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that he's a unique character in and of himself. I wouldn't necessarily draw any baselines from him. Mm. Uh, you know, he has a long history having been in Congress. He's run for president probably more times than I am alive years. Um, he's, you know, he's been out of Congress now for a number of years. I, if I remember right, he ran for governor once before. Um, he's kind of, he's not the average Democratic primary candidate. Mm-hmm. Um so I don't know that I've necessarily drawn any conclusions from the fact that he lost to Cordray. Um, but I think in general, if you look around at the primaries that we had last night, people who are proud to be progressive and proud to stand up for people mm-hmm. uh, did pretty darn well. Um, I also think it's interesting, you know, we were talking a minute ago about Trump, and I, I saw a couple people talking about this last night, and it kind of re- resonated with me, in that it's actually not Trump that's toxic. With the voters, it appears, but it's McConnell. Even in Kentucky, McConnell's approval rating is 30%. Wow. How does one capitalize on that? Trump. Yeah. That, it, I, is it possible? That to... Actually, I think we're seeing that a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, they always run against Nancy. I think it's time for us to run against Mitch. That makes, that makes sense. That makes you all know? the sense in the world. I remember in, in 2010, I went to D.C., and every window at the RNC building had a big red sign that said "Fire Pelosi." Mm-hmm. I'm ready for my Fire McConnell bumper stickers. I was also a little bit scary, right? Because we obviously want. It'd be nice if we could say that we were going to have a repeat of 2010 with the Sharon Angles and the and the. Uh, I can't remember the woman's name that said she was a witch, but we didn't get that last night. Was that right? Betsy McCoy? Like, was that right? Win. Was Betsy McCoy the witch? Maybe. Yeah, uh, I can't remember anymore. <laughs> um, but we didn't get the crazies to run against, right? Remember Alabama? We didn't get another Roy Moore last night. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're the, the idea of the D.C. involvement kind of showed its face last night mm-hmm. in the sense of I think the Republican establishment was like, oh, wow, we cannot have repeats of mm-hmm. Alabama in 2010. Mm-hmm. And so they kind of came in on the more centrist feeling candidates. Yeah. Um, you know, in West Virginia, for example, Manchin is definitely going to have a fight on his hands. 30% of Democrats did not vote for Manchin. They voted for a, a basically a no-name third-level Democratic candidate who nobody had ever heard of mm-hmm. um, against Manchin. And then instead of the GOP nominating Blankenship, they nominated a little bit of an outsider who's a little more centrist. Yeah. So I think he's got a real fight in his hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Donnelly... You know, and the thing is, if we lose one of those guys, if we lose Donnelly, if we lose Manson, that's it. Game over. We're not getting the Senate back. And that's so against um, the it's so against the, the, the hopeful philosophies that we've been hearing about how Trump has been so egregiously bad and the Congress has been so impossible you know, to get them to stand up to him that it's going to be a blue sweep. It's going to be a blue wave. And that's just you know, like so many other things we best not assume. I would love to think that, but I choose to live in the reality that we can't take anything for granted. We're going to have to fight for every single seat. Mm-hmm. I think in the House, I think the House maybe is a little bit different. Um, I'm very encouraged by the fact that most of the members of the House that were looking for promotions last night failed to get the promotion. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily believe that there's actually a blue wave building that's going to be a tsunami of blue. I think there's a path for us to get it done. But it's going to take all of us, not just voting, but getting 55 of our closest friends to vote, too. And I, I get very frustrated when I hear people talking about a blue wave or a blue tsunami, because for every person that talks about it, there's 30 people out there that think it's real and thinks that they don't have to go vote. 
Very good point. And when our people don't show up, that's a problem. Let's talk about the fact that so, so many yeah. people on the Democratic or independent side are still fighting over the 2016 election. You know, Bernie is a thief. No yeah. And, well, I'm concerned that's going to have it's not just people flinging tweets at each other. I just I, I live in deep fear that that is going to have real world consequences where once again, the left and the Democrats, not necessarily the same thing, are going to engage in a circular firing squad and boom, we're out of the game again. Well, I said it in a training over the weekend. I was doing a training in Omaha, Nebraska mm. in partnership with Credo Mobile. Mm. They have a program called Project Fierce Urgency where they are training grassroots activists in digital organizing. And we had, I don't remember, maybe 15 or 16 true grassroots leaders from all over Nebraska in the room. And I believe at one point somebody asked me something about something on social media. And my direct quote was, well, you know, we're pretty good at snapping defeat out of the jaws of victory. Yes. And we do that by doing things like talking about blue waves. We mm -hmm. do that by assuming that we have that particular election in the bag. And we do that by living in the past instead of doing the analysis of the past, which I'm pretty sure we all did in November of 2016 and December and January and February and March. It's 2018. It is now time mm -hmm. for us to learn those lessons, and we need to not be talking about 2020. We still have November 2018 to get through, and right. if we, there is definitely an ideological divide in the Democratic Party, mm -hmm. right? There's definitely kind of this. I only, I don't actually even think of Hillary Clinton as a centrist myself. So, if you want to call it Clinton-Sanders divide. I guess you're welcome to do that. Mm -hmm. I think it's more, I would go back to maybe even the framing of 2010 of the progressives versus the blue dogs yeah, and the yellow dogs. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's probably more accurate because I think that at this point, I think the whole Hillary Bernie thing is more of people talking past each other instead of to each other or with each other. Absolutely. But if we don't cut that stuff out, see, I censored myself for you, Angie. If we don't <laughs> cut that out, uh, we will snatch defeat from victory, and we're gonna this, this, we're gonna be in big trouble. Uh, before we're, I let you, we're not just we like the left. I mean, we like this country. Oh, before uh, I let you go, then let me ask you about successful messaging. When you hear people throwing, you know, Hillary the Crook versus the Bernie Bros, what is successful messaging to get people over that hump? This is gonna sound really horrible. Mm-hmm. And I and I almost am going to read. I'm probably going to get quoted all over Twitter for saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway because I believe it. We need to have some prominent Democratic candidate go down in flames in the midst of that conversation as a wake up call. That okay, you guys were so busy fighting each other, we just had Hillary Part Two where we lost this amazing person. Mm. Wake up, and truthfully. You know, one, I'm not ever going to be okay with anyone saying that Hillary should shut down and shut up. I think Hillary should be the next attorney general of New York, by the way. But I am also would love to see Senator Sanders say, hello, you need to stop talking about it. When he gets asked questions about the 16 stuff, mm -hmm. he needs to not answer it and pivot right back to 2018. Got that's it. what we need to be doing. We need to be pivoting. Every, anytime that comes up, great, that's the distant past. Let's talk about what we're doing in November. 
here's this great candidate that's a follower of Bernie, or here's this great candidate that's a follower of Hillary, or whatever. Mm-hmm. We need to be talking about our 2018 candidates. That is where we're going to end that's it, the bottom Beth line. Baker. Thank you so much. I appreciate great. your time. Beth Becker of Becker Digital Strategies. Last little something for you before we close off here. We're talking so much about dishonesty and corruption. Not too long ago, I had an opportunity to spend an hour with Deborah Rohde of Stanford University. I'll bring you more of this later this week. But here's a bit of our conversation on She's been working in ethics in law and business and in pop culture her entire life. So I sat down and talked to her about how we become ethical or not in our society. One of the best predictors about whether people will cheat or whether they'll engage in acts of moral heroism, you know, saving Jews from the Nazis, for example, is whether they've internalized that sense of moral identity. But where does it come from? I mean, it, it comes not just from parents telling students, you know, their, their children don't cheat, it's wrong, but engaging in a moral dialogue with them, explaining why it's wrong, getting them to understand how uh, corrosive it is, if everybody did that, what kind of uh, system of evaluation would we be able to have a meritocracy? Getting um, uh, kids to understand that and also modeling it themselves. And I I think one of the things I point out in the book is the irony of, uh, you know, one um, parent whose kid uh, was caught cheating. And, you know, it, it turned out that the parent was, quote, helping the kid with the homework. And if the parents model that that's okay, in fact, writing the essay for them, even if they say, well, don't cheat, if you're sending the different message by your own conduct, or if the the kid sees the parents engaging in petty dishonesty or lacking empathy uh, in response to moral issues, that sends a so much more powerful message than anything that a parent can verbally say about thou shalt not. You have to, you know, really model it for for kids. And that has to be done by by school teachers and coaches, uh, religious figures, you know, the culture generally and the media. We we really need to, you know, fix some of the messages that are coming out from pop culture as well. Deborah, what have you found about how businesses convey to their employees what's expected of them? Well, in another sort of case history that I talk about in the cheating book is Enron, which actually had a great code of ethics. And, you know, they announced really good values. It's just nobody ever looked at it. And after uh, Enron imploded because of fraudulent behavior and behavior fringing on fraud at the fringes of fraud, somebody posted the um, code uh, for sale saying never been used. And that was pretty much the (laughs) Enron culture. And the way they promoted at Enron was a kind of rank and yank rule. They looked at how profitable people were and they fired the people at the bottom. Uh, So the message that went out is profits at any cost and people behaved accordingly. And that led to one of the biggest bankruptcies in U.S. history. Thousands of pensioners lost their funds. And, you know, it's it's really distressing. I also, you know, one of the uh, examples that I talk about in the cheating book that's very much like the Merck case and um, one that really – hit me personally was a sleeping pill manufacturer Mm. who knew of some side effects that didn't they didn't disclose and i was a user of one of those pills and after a long trip of prolonged use i landed in the emergency room and i could have died um as a result uh, yeah i was actually hallucinating at that point and people thought maybe i had a brain tumor they couldn't figure out you know what the cause of it was 
And when I read that, you know, the company was eventually sued and they paid out, you know, some trivial amount of money, I, I, I guess I, I read about corporate misconduct all the time, but when I saw what the personal costs are and just how callous the company was about it, it it fueled my sense of outrage. And we really need not just the mission statements, but we need the infrast an ethical infrastructure is what experts call it to make sure those values are reflected in the reward systems of the companies. Question from the audience. Recently, one of our guests here discussed how few business people were punished for actions that led to the Great Recession. The fines they were given meant nothing to them. And I recall that guest, the percentage was ridiculous. And the guest pointed out that the only way to stem unethical and or illegal behavior is to subject more wrongdoers to shame and prison sentences. I, I actually agree with that. I, I think shame has different meanings and uses depending on the context. In many contexts, it makes sense to condemn the sin, not the sinner. And it always makes sense to give people an understanding of the possibility of redemption and change. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what you want is for people to feel remorse. And that I think we can sometimes accomplish by the shaming process if there's no other strategy to accomplish it. And what's been so, I think, um, pernicious about the way we've handled crime in the suites as opposed to crime in the streets <laughs> is white collar offenders you know, generally get off. Only one in six of the people who have been tagged for uh, financial misconduct end up serving any jail time. The fines are frequently trivial. It's viewed as a cost of just doing business. Uh, and they come out of even scandals with a lot of their fortunes intact. That was true in the most recent Wells Fargo scandal as well. Those executives walked away with you know, quite generous financial uh, 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 rewards, uh, despite demonstrated indifference to misconduct. So we really need to change that. Um, we need to take misconduct by those in power mm -hmm. much more seriously. And if we can't get that through the legal system, then I think we get it through social media. We get it through this kind of a program. We get it through the mainstream media, shining a light on conduct that should make people feel ashamed. Deborah, is that what you see, that people can be influenced by the larger picture around them so they examine their own morals? With me, too, even if you don't know that cheating is wrong, you may be afraid of being caught. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, I think we're at this interesting cultural moment because we do uh, see some corrosion in moral standards and a sense that, you know, gee, everyone does it. Only a third of Americans thought Donald Trump was honest and trustworthy, and 63 million voters supported him anyway. And his subsequent behavior confirms those initial impressions and you know, sends a terrible message. On the other hand, the countervailing cultural signals that we're getting through movements like hashtag MeToo suggest that people will be held more accountable because I think here technology has been our friend. Mm -hmm. Social media has now made it possible to inflict enormous reputational damage on people whose behavior would previously never have gotten a formal hearing. And now I think the message of cases like Uber, where Susan Fowler exposed egregious forms of sex harassment just through a blog post, 
which went viral. And she bypassed the legal system. She bypassed HR. And 20 executives lost their jobs as a result of the fallout of that. And that's the power I think we're now seeing. Deborah, let's talk a little bit about consequences. And you brought up the, the sports world. Mm -hmm. Doping. I was very surprised when this started to come up in baseball and in football, and so many people didn't think that was a big deal. To me, that would be the essence of cheating. What consequences have you seen in the sports world, and do you find them to be equal to the effect of cheating? Yeah. Well, I think there was and still is some ambiguity about what kinds of performance-enhancing drugs constitute doping and what are just therapeutic uses. Um, and so the concept blurs a little around the edges, and that created some ambiguity that people then used to rationalize taking stuff that was clearly performance-enhancing. But the real problem was that... Um, that athletes could stay ahead of the compliance structures. And every time people put in some way of testing, they found ways around it. Lance Armstrong being the case in point, all those Tour de France wins um, when he was engaged in illegal doping. And what's so disheartening about that um, example is even though he was ultimately stripped of his titles, he still walked away with many, many millions, and he was recently asked about this by a journalist, and he said, you know, I'd do it again. So we need to crack down on the compliance structures, and we need to make it an even playing field for the athletes who don't dope. And I think that's beginning to change, and finally the international community is getting its act together to impose serious sanctions that that just happened with Russia in the Olympics. And I think the athletes are realizing that they have a stake in making that system work, too. And a leading world figure in bicycling said, listen, I'm willing to pee in a cup 24 times a day if that's going to make this sport fairer for those of us um, who don't want to cheat. And that's the mindset I think we need to inculcate and reward and reinforce. And it has to start before they get to professional sports. You know, you, we have to create a culture of sporting that starts very early on, making it clear that winning isn't the only value here. It's mm -hmm. uh, integrity and sportsmanship matter, and they shouldn't just be trotted out at the annual sports banquet at the end of the year. They need to be re reinforced every day on the playing field. Deborah Rohde of Stanford University. She was part of a panel that I conducted. You'll be hearing more of that later this week. And that is a wrap for today on the Bradcast. Tuning again tomorrow and again Friday for me. And after that, I'm going to insist that Brad and Desi come back to work. Until then, good luck, world. Good luck, world.